Welcome to the Business Law Podcast, the podcast where we demystify the law. Jonathan Fleischer is your host, and in each episode, we will unravel legal complexities and delve into intriguing topics that directly impact your business, from contract essentials to litigation strategies and everything in between. Join us to explore the fascinating intersection of law and entrepreneurship. So tune in for expert insights and captivating discussions that make the legal side of business not just understandable, but actually interesting. Let's dive in. This podcast is not intended as legal advice. Seek legal counsel for all legal issues. Hello, welcome to another week of the Business Law Podcast. This week, we are going to continue discussing contracts. Last week, we went through the basics. Uh, This week, we'll get into some more details. So you may recall that last week, we spoke about the idea that contracts do not necessarily need to be written down to be enforceable. So question is, well, let's say we have a verbal contract and then you refuse to perform under the contract, right? So I enter into a contract with a painter to paint my house. He refuses to do it. We don't have anything written down. Now I need to go hire somebody else. It's costing me an extra $2,000 and I want to sue the original guy that I had the verbal contract with for my $2,000, how do I go about suing him, right? If I don't have anything written down, how am I going to prove that I actually had a contract with him? And the answer is simply that the easiest way to sue somebody is just by suing them. Even if the court doesn't end up buying your testimony or buying the evidence that you may show, which we'll discuss in a minute, Um, You can file a lawsuit just based on your say-so, saying that I hired this guy. Chances are he will try to make excuses and just blatantly lie under oath and say it's not true. I never had a conversation or he may just not show up. So the first thing to know before even discussing how to prove it is the fact that you actually have a case. So you have a case. uh, You have the right to sue him, bring him to court. Your testimony, of course, is admissible. You can give testimony under oath. And even if there's no evidence other than your testimony, and even if the other guy says, not true, never happened, he just blatantly lies under oath, perjures himself, and says that he never agreed to paint your house, a judge or a jury, depending on the size of the case or whether you had a jury demand, um, may decide that they believe you more than they believe him. And they may award you damages simply because you come across as more believable than the other guy. Of course, if you can show that there were phone calls between you, if you can show text messages between you, emails, pretty much any evidence that's between the two of you, that will be admissible evidence so that you can show um, that you hired this guy even though there was no written contract to paint your house and that he then breached the contract. And so you can then sue him for damages. All right. So even though you don't have a written contract, there is still, it's still fairly simple to bring a lawsuit just based on your say so um, that you had a verbal contract with him and that he breached the contract. All right. Now let's get into the question of whether all contracts um, are enforceable even when they are not written down. Are all contracts enforceable even though they're not written down? The answer is no. There are certain contracts that will only be enforceable when they're written down. And the law that governs this or the doctrine that governs this is known as the statute of frauds. Um, the reason why it's called the statute of frauds is uh, it's to protect parties from entering into contracts on certain kinds of transactions from future frauds. 
And so basically the idea behind this doctrine or these laws is that uh, in order to induce parties to make sure that there will not be future frauds on their transactions, what we're going to do is say that unless you have your transaction, the, the unless you have the details of your transaction written down in a signed document, um, the agreement is not going to be enforceable. All right. So the question is, what kind of contracts have to be written down in order to be enforceable? And there are there's more than four types, but there's four types that are the most common. Um, and the most common one is contracts for real estate. All right. So any contract that involves real estate um, has to be uh, has to be written down in order to be enforceable. So that means a contract to buy a house, to sell a house. Uh, is not enforceable unless it is written down and signed by parties. Another kind of contract that falls under the statute of frauds and needs to be in writing in order to be enforceable is a contract for a service that cannot be completed in less than one year. So uh, we'll get into examples afterwards, but just know that that is another kind of contract that is not enforceable unless it's in writing and signed. Another kind, which is very common, uh, is a contract for the sale of goods, which is worth $500 or more, right? So if I sign a contract with you to sell you something that's worth less than $500, that's enforceable even if it's not in writing. However, if it's worth $500 or more, then it's only enforceable if it's in writing. Now, to be clear, again, that's only if it's a contract for goods, not if it's a contract for services. So if we're talking about a contract for services, even if it's $500 or more, it is enforceable even if it's not in writing. However, when we're talking about sale of goods, it's only enforceable if it's $500 or more if the contract is put in writing. All right. And the fourth kind, which is fairly common, uh, not as common as the other three, is a contract where one person agrees to be a surety or a guarantor for somebody else, meaning where one person agrees to pay the debts of another person. So where somebody agrees to pay the debts of another person, such a contract, such an agreement is only is only enforceable if it's in writing and signed by the parties. All right, so let's give some practical examples um, of contracts that are not enforceable unless they're in writing. Uh, first one, like we said, uh, most common is simply a contract to buy a house. So let's say um, I'm in a big rush to go buy a house. I meet somebody, he says, hey, I'm selling my house. We come to an agreement. We haggle on the price. We finally come to an agreement. We're sitting at a bar. We shake hands. We take a drink and we say, great, we have a deal. Next day, someone else comes over to him and offers him $10,000 more and he wants to pull out. Can he pull out? The answer is yes. There was no signed contract. It is not an enforceable contract unless and until it's in writing and signed. All right, another example same two guys sitting at a bar. One of them wants to sell his car. The other guy is desperate to buy a car. They haggle over the price. They finally settle on a price of $2,000 for this car. Great deal. The buyer is really excited. They shake hands. They take a drink. Uh, the next day, the guy decides, that's crazy. Why am I selling my car for $2,000? He says, forget it. I'm backing out of the deal. Uh, he can back out of the deal. Again, reason being, this was a contract for a sale of goods, right? This is a sale of a car. It's not for services. It's for a sale of goods. Um, there was no written agreement and uh, and therefore it's not enforceable. Now, let's say you're sitting at a bar and uh, in order to make this agreement good, 
you take a napkin and you write on the back of the napkin, John agrees to sell to Frank his 2005 Toyota Camry for $2,000, and both of them scribble their name on the bottom. Is that enforceable? The answer is yes. That is an enforceable contract. Um, it has what the car is. It has the price. It has the parties. That would make it enforceable. So if you're ever sitting at a bar and you have an agreement with somebody to buy his car for $2,000, Grab a napkin, grab a pen. If you don't have a pen, borrow one from the bartender, write it down on a napkin and sign it. Unless you may be the one who wants to back out the next day, then don't do that. All right, um, let's give another example. Uh, let's say I enter an agreement to manage your property at a rate of $1,000 per month. Um, this is obviously more than $500. Now, even if we did not sign a contract. However, this agreement will be enforceable. And the reason this agreement will be enforceable is because that's not a contract for a sale of goods. That is a contract for services. So since it's a contract for services, it's not, it is enforceable, even though it's not in writing. However, let's say the agreement was to manage your property for the next two years then it would not be enforceable under the statute of frauds if it's not in writing because the contract cannot be completed within a year. Since the contract cannot be completed within a year because it's a two-year contract, it does need to be in writing in order to be enforceable. All right, so that's basics of statutes of frauds. Obviously, there's there's a lot of uh, kind of nitty-gritty gray area um, differences in state law in in scenarios that you'll find which are somewhere in the middle on some of these things. But most important ones to know, of course, are real estate, that it's not enforceable unless it's in writing, and sale of goods for over $500. Again, not enforceable unless it's in writing. Now, the next question, which is always an important one, is are there any exceptions to these rules, right? So we just gave a list of kinds of contracts that are not enforceable unless they're in writing and signed. Um, question is, are there any exceptions? Even within those contracts, are there ways to make those contracts enforceable even if they are not uh, in writing and signed? And the answer is yes. And that's almost always the answer because I would say there's always exceptions, but that would uh, that would kind of be paradoxical to say there's always exceptions because then there would be no exception to that rule. So there's generally uh, almost always exceptions. And this is one of those times where you have an exception. So what are the exceptions? One exception is if one party begins performance and cannot easily make use of the performance. So let's say, for instance, um, I hire you to mow my lawn and we sign a two-year contract for you to take care of my lawn. All right. And then you actually go and mow my lawn for the first several months. And you send me a bill and you say, look, we agreed to a price of $200 a week for me to mow the lawn on your property. I've been doing it the past three months. And you come back and say, hey, there's no contract. I just listened to this podcast. He said that if there's no contract, no written contract, uh, since this is a an agreement for more than a year, uh, I don't have to pay you. But in this case, of course, you would have to pay him it's under several legal theories. But the most basic one, as far as contract law is concerned, uh, is that once performance once performance has been tendered, um, that you are required to pay under the contract. Now, you may not be obligated for the rest of the contract. You may be able to fire him moving forward uh, because you may not be obligated for the rest of the contract in this case. However, um, 
for the work that he did, you are certainly obligated to pay him. Now let's let's move this uh, let's move this concept a step further. Let's say I hire you for sale of goods, something worth more than five hundred dollars, but this is not something that you have already uh, already to go. I hired you to manufacture something and sell it to me, right? So I didn't hire you for the service of manufacturing, but I hired you to sell me a piece of equipment with the understanding that you're going to manufacture it and sell me the final product, right? So the agreement was for me to buy the final product, but with the understanding that you're going to manufacture the product and then sell it to me. And we did not put it in writing. We don't have a written contract. Nobody signed anything. But regardless, we did come to a final agreement. We had an understanding that this is what we're going to do. And you start manufacturing the item, right? And it's a specialty item. It's not something that you can just easily put on your shelf and sell to somebody else. Uh, if you already start manufacturing the item, you put in any kind of significant amount of time, energy, or money, Um that is another example of where the uh, where the other party is not going to be able to back out of the contract, right? And it's kind of logical. Uh, it's intuitive. We had an agreement. I started, I put in work already based upon our agreement. I put in time, effort, money based upon our agreement to allow you at this point to back out after I already invested time and money for based upon our agreement would be unfair. It would be inequitable. And so in a case like that, um, it's too late. You cannot back out of the agreement, even though it was not put into writing. All right. And another very, very common example, um, another common exception to the rule of statute of frauds is where the item was already paid for. So let's say we have an agreement for you to buy my car. Um, we're sitting in the bar. We say 2000 bucks for my car. I take $2,000 out of my pocket or I write you a check for $2,000. I hand it over to you. I say, I say, here, here's the money for your car. We never sign a contract. You never delivered the car to me. Uh, again, at that point, since I paid already, again, that is considered that I performed my requirements under the contract, right? The agreement is you give the car, I give the money. I already did my part under the contract completely. I paid for the car. Since I already paid for it, it's too late for the other party to back out. Once performance has been tendered by one party, he already gave the money for the car. It's too late for the other party to back out, even though there is no written contract. Okay, so that's another exception to the rule where even though there was no written contract and the statute of frauds would technically apply to this transaction since what, since the buyer paid for the item he's buying, it's too late, even though title wasn't transferred yet. Um, title wasn't actually transferred yet. Uh, it's still too late for the other party to back out. He is required to transfer title. If he refuses to, you may be able to sue him to transfer title or for damages. Again, you can go back to last week's podcast to find out when you can sue for performance, when you can sue for damages. Uh, but the idea being that there is an enforceable contract that you can sue under. Now, another interesting question that comes up um, in this topic is what counts for a signature, right? So it used to be uh, pen and paper was the way things worked. It was pretty straightforward. You took a paper, you took a pen, you signed on the paper, that's a signature. Maybe you had a stamp, stamped your signature, that probably worked as well. Uh, but nowadays, we've got electronic signature, right? And does that work as a signature under the statute of frauds? 
And the answer to that is yes, uh, almost unequivocally. I believe by now it is unequivocal, certainly in New Jersey. Um, I believe all states by now have adopted this, um, that that tracked electronic signatures that are intended as a signature are considered signatures for statute of fraud purposes. So if somebody sends out a contract and they say, here, I'm sending it via hello sign or DocuSign or whatever electronic signature you like, um, and the other side says, no, I want a real signature. Uh, there's no real reason for that. An electronic signature, as long as it can, as long as you can prove that it's the person who's supposed to be signing actually signed it, which, uh, generally is not too difficult that, uh, um, electronic signatures usually include that you can trace the IP address where it was signed from the email it came from. Um, so generally speaking, that is good for a signature. Uh, the exception to that, which is not an exception in contract law, uh, is when you have recordables, so something that needs to be recorded, like a deed um, or ans- uh, ancillary documents to a deed that need to be recorded by the county clerk. They have their own rules as to what kind of documents they'll record, and typically they will only record documents that have actual original wet signatures. They will they will not accept uh, electronic signatures. But again, that's kind of county recording rules, county clerk rules, that's not law of contract. So as far as a contract is concerned, e-signature is valid. Uh, It's binding the same as a wet signature. Now, an interesting question that comes up is, what about an email? Let's say say we are conversing over email and uh, I'm trying to sell you my car, right? And I say, here, I'll offer you my car for $2,000. And you say, yes, I accept. Um, will that be considered writing with a signature? So uh, there is a New Jersey appellate case which held that in an email where there was where each email had the name of the parties on bottom. So you know a lot of people have just their name printed on the bottom of each email. Um, that that was good enough to be considered a writing with a signature on bottom. Um, the court did point out that it's because there were names on bottom. Uh, the court did not was not 100% clear about whether having the names on bottom is fatal uh, and whether if there had not been names on bottom, if the court would have ruled otherwise. So that point is still a little bit open. Uh, to my knowledge, there is no case law that says that an email without a name on bottom would be considered a signature. Um, but this much is clear uh, that the New Jersey Appellate Court has ruled that an email that has a name on bottom is considered uh, is considered writing with a signature as long as the intent of the parties with the email was to finalize a deal, right? So obviously, if the email uh, is kind of shows some level of agreement but doesn't show um, kind of a final uh, an intent to have a final agreement, then obviously that's not a contract because it was never their intent to create a final agreement. But where the email says yes, accepted, we have a deal. Something that shows the intent of the parties was to have a final agreement and it has the names of the people sending the email on bottom. Um, That has been held by the New Jersey Appellate Court. Actually, the case originated in Ocean County um, where I live. Uh, But uh, the the, uh, New Jersey Appellate Court held that that is sufficient for statute of fraud purposes. It's considered a writing with a signature. All right, so that's the basics for this week for contracts when you require a signature, when you don't, 
Um, and in contracts that don't require signature, if you don't have it in writing, how would you prove it? Again, that was the beginning of the, of this week's episode. Uh, and next week we will probably look more into some details on contract law. All right. And have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the business law podcast, a podcast produced and edited by Elemento Productions. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-O productions.com.